So what is God like? Tozer says the most important thing that a man can do is to realize how he thinks about God. John Calvin, a famous pastor and theologian, wrote perhaps one of the best Christian books of all time, The Institutes, and he begins by saying, True and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. In this story, Moses gains some knowledge about God, and it leads to life transformation. Perhaps the same will be true for us this morning. Let's look at the text together. Beginning in verse 1, let me give you a little bit of context. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. You might remember this guy, Moses. A few movies have been made about him. Well, leading up to chapter 3, chapter 1 and chapter 2 actually cover 80 years of his life. If you remember, the people of Israel were living in Egypt. Joseph dies. There's a new king of Egypt. He doesn't like the Israelites multiplying, so he enslaves them. And after he enslaves them, they continue to multiply. So then he says, hey, kill all the male children. And then they continue to multiply. Moses' mother takes him and puts him in a basket. You remember this? Puts him in the Nile. And as he's three months old and he's floating down the Nile, who finds him? None other than the daughter of Pharaoh. She scoops him up out of the water. She takes Moses as his, her own, and he is raised as a prince of Egypt. That's the first 40 years of his life, almost, in chapter 1. Chapter 2 picks up where Moses is walking around Egypt. He knows he's a Hebrew, and he sees an Egyptian beating one of his people, and so he actually murders the Egyptian. He tries to hide the body. He wants to be the deliverer of his people, but his people reject him. And then Pharaoh finds out what he's done, and he tries to kill Moses. And so Moses has to flee to Midian. Now, I don't care who you are, that's a bad day. Your family rejects you, your boss fires you, and you kill somebody in the parking lot on the way out. <laughs> that's where we pick up Moses in chapter 3. He's living in Midian with his father-in-law, Jethro. As he goes out to Midian, he encounters this woman who's being harassed by some shepherds. He saves her, and then her father says, hey, come live with us. And so for the next 40 years of his life, he marries this girl, he lives with his in-laws, and he works as a shepherd, something that all Egyptians looked at with great disdain. So he goes from the prince of Egypt now to a shepherd in his 60s living in his father-in-law's basement. A failure in any culture. Life was not going how Moses thought it would go. Any of you identify with that? Maybe life is not going how you thought it would go. We always ask a question at our uh, new members seminar. We always ask everyone, what did you want to be when you are five and what are you now? Very few people are actually what they wanted to be when they were five. You ever experience disappointment in life, thinking it's just not working out how you thought it would? Maybe you didn't get the job that you wanted. Maybe you didn't get the spouse that you wanted. Maybe you think that you're living in the wrong city. Well, Moses can identify with you, and you can identify with Moses. And it's in this context that God shows up in a really surprising way 
in a really surprising place. In verse 2, Moses is out tending the sheep when he sees this burning bush. And the text says he turned aside to go and see it. He went to the backside of the wilderness. He went out of his way to see this burning sheep, uh, this burning bush. Not burning sheep, that would be strange. A burning bush. He left the mundane busyness of life to go and investigate this bush. It also says it was a great sight. Well, why was it a great sight? It was a great sight because this bush was on fire, but it was not burning up. The stems and the leaves were still there. They were not being consumed by the flames. And this shocks Moses like it would any of us. It's a paradigm bomb. Why is it a paradigm bomb? It grabs his attention because he sees something that is not very natural and it's disrupting. Paradigm bomb. Any of you ever have a paradigm bomb in your life? I had one in high school. My paradigm, my view of Christianity was that if I obey God, then He will give me what I want. Well, when I didn't get what I wanted and I thought I obeyed God, then my whole paradigm was thrown into question. I experienced a contradiction that made me examine my convictions and my reality changed. Tim Keller does a great job of bringing up several examples in chapter 1 of that book that I mentioned. We'll have more next week. But chapter 1, he brings up several examples of what could be a paradigm bomb in our life. Perhaps it's a friend. Perhaps you encountered a Christian who extended grace and forgiveness to you that you didn't deserve. And that made you question what you thought about Christianity. A paradigm bomb could come as a thought. Maybe you're thinking through your worldview and you realize that no atheistic worldview can justify universal human rights. Maybe that's a paradigm bomb in your thinking. Or maybe it's a trouble. You think that you can control your life. And then you get the call that you do have cancer. That's a bomb. Or maybe it's just emptiness. Maybe you actually achieved everything you wanted in your life. Maybe you got the job, the girl, the house, and the city. Yet you're still empty. And you wonder, is this all? I thought that if I got all these things, then life would be satisfying. Why do I feel empty? Those are all examples of paradigm bombs. And they come to non-Christians and they come to Christians. Because many Christians, like me, I thought I was a believer and I thought I had built my eternal significance and my meaning in life on the gospel. But when the paradigm bomb happened, I realized that I had built it on something else. You and I experience paradigm bombs all the time when trouble or emptiness comes into life. And friends, there's good news. God comes and He meets Moses in the wilderness when life wasn't working out how He thought it would work out. And God will also meet you and I in the wilderness today. Think about it. Moses is not on some spiritual pilgrimage. He's out tending his sheep in the middle 
of nowhere, and bam, God shows up with a paradigm bomb. Now, at this point, don't miss this. Moses is in the wilderness, and God begins to speak for the first time in Exodus. So let's listen to what he says. Moses, in verse 4, is still puzzled by the burning bush. It's strange enough to see a bush that's not burning up. And then he hears a voice. If I'm Moses, maybe he's thinking, I shouldn't have had that second beer at the Midianite Tavern. This is weird. But it's not just any voice. It's the voice of the Lord. And the Lord is going to reveal himself to Moses. It's not Moses sitting underneath a tree speculating about God. But it's God revealing himself to Moses. It's not speculation. It's revelation from God. And so God is going to define his being to Moses. The first thing that he's going to tell Moses is this. He's going to tell Moses that he is holy. You see, when he calls out to Moses, he says, Moses, Moses. He is inviting. Whenever you see two names back to back, it's emotional intensity. It's like when my mom used to always yell at me when I was in trouble. John, David, Stevenson. Full name. There's emotional intensity. When God says, Moses, Moses, he is inviting him into his presence. But Moses can't come into his presence. Why? Because God says, you are on holy ground. Take off your sandals. This is communicating reverence and fear. You see, Moses knew that God was holy. But now, he's experiencing God's holiness for the first time. Now think about that for just a minute. You know, we know that God is different from us. It's the reason why all religions throughout the history of the world always have a bridge between God and humanity. There's some type of sacrificial system. There's some type of temple or priesthood we know that we need a mediator between God and us because he's not like us he's holy and so Moses was rightly afraid now why did God appear as a burning bush as fire well all throughout the Bible God's presence is symbolized by fire it's his majesty Remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden? He had uh, cherubim and seraphim guarding it with swords of flame, symbolizing the presence of God. When Moses is on Mount Sinai, God descends on it with fire. And when God leads the people through the wilderness, He leads them as a pillar of fire. Now if you think about fire, it makes sense. Fire is very majestic. It appeals to all of the senses. You can hear it crackle. You can breathe in the smoke in your nostrils. You can see uh, the flames. You can feel the warmth of the fire. It's very inviting. It's very majestic. But fire is also very purifying. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says God is a consuming fire. You know, you can... You can sterilize a needle by holding a flame underneath the needle. It purifies it. So it makes sense that God would reveal His holiness as 
fire. And think about fire. You don't just believe in fire, but you experience fire. So, how do we experience God? The first way that we can experience God is by knowing that He is different from us. That we have to humble ourselves before Him. That we have to take off our sandals. We have to recognize that He is different from us. You know, Christians and non-Christians don't like the holiness of God at times. Non-Christians deny that God exists because they don't like the holiness of God. We like for morals to be relative. That's how we deal with our unholiness. But we as Christians have another way of dealing with not being holy. The way that we often deal with it is we just compare ourselves to other people. As long as I'm holier than that person, as long as I'm not as bad as they are, then I can deal with my unholiness. But the only standard by which we should compare ourselves is the holiness of God because God says, be holy, perfect, because I am holy. So the first thing that God reveals about his character to Moses and to us is that I am holy. Now, the second thing that he reveals is in verse 7 through 12. Moses learns that the Lord is faithful. You see, how does God identify himself there? He says, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Why does he do that? He does that because he wants to remind Moses, this is not some new plan. I made a covenant to Abraham, and I am going to be faithful to keep it. But the people... It's been a long time. They've been in slavery for a long time, and they want to know, God, have you forgotten us? And God is telling Moses, I am faithful. My character is always consistent, and I always keep my promises. Now, this God that is being revealed to Moses is also a personal God. He doesn't sit outside creation. He's involved in it. Look at the verbs there. God hears their cries. He knows that they are enslaved. He is aware of their affliction. God is the God who is involved with His people. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm sitting there thinking, hey, this is kind of cool. I'm hearing a lot about God. This is good stuff. And then the subject switches from God to Moses... And Moses gets a little uncomfortable in verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's basically telling God, hey, don't you remember? I tried this once already. My family doesn't like me. I failed before. I don't have what it takes. And he's also thinking, hey, God, don't you remember this Pharaoh guy wanted to kill me? Don't you know if you call me to go back, and to try to deliver the people of Israel, that I will probably die? Don't you understand that it's dangerous, God? And I love God's response to him. What does he not say? What does God not say to Moses? He doesn't say, you know what, Moses? You're a pretty awesome guy. And they just didn't see it before. If you go back this time, they'll see that you're really awesome. And I just want you to know, you have gifts. You have a lot of gifts. You're just not aware of them. You'll get back and do it. And now, Moses, repeat after me. My name is Moses, and I'm a bad man. He doesn't say any of those things 
to Moses. How does he reassure Moses? He doesn't talk about Moses, but he says, I am with you. You see, one pastor said, real confidence comes not from competence, but from the assurance of God's presence. I had a friend in seminary who was really wrestling through his call into ministry because he had a speech impediment. And one time in preaching lab, he shared this that he had written in his journal. As he was working through his call, he thought this. He said, I don't have the ability, and God said to me, you have direct access to the Father. And he thought, but who will believe me? And God says, follow me, boy, and I will make you a fisher of men. And he thought, but I am a coward. And God said, you are more than a conqueror. And he thought, but I am not disciplined. And God says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. But it won't be easy. And God says, consider the ant, you sluggard, for my way is easy and my burden is light. But how will I feed my family? And God says, look at what I did with five loaves and two fish. But where will I go? And God said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But my health, Lord. And God said, look who heals the sick and makes the crippled man walk. But all of my idols. And God said, look at my indescribable glory. But the job is so difficult. And God said, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Real confidence doesn't come from competence, but from the assurance of God's presence. God's second point to Moses, to my friend, and to us, is I am faithful. Now the third attribute that he reveals to Moses is in verses 13 to 14. Moses objects again. So he basically says to God, okay, I get it, you're holy and you're faithful, but do you really have the power to do anything about it? To a lesser degree, we ask our parents that sometimes. I know you love me. I know you're faithful. But do you have the resources to deal with my problem? And God shows up again by giving Moses a name. You know, those are the two most important questions that Moses asks. Who am I? And who are you? And how does God answer? He answers by saying, I am who I am. Or, I will be who I am. Now, names were really significant because it revealed something about the character during this time. Now, it would be really strange for us during the passing of the peace if you introduced yourself and said, hey, I'm George. And I said, hey, I am who I am. You'd look at me kind of strange. So what does God mean by that? He means that he is completely different from Moses. He is saying, I do not have a beginning and I have no end. I am not going anywhere and I will always be this way. My name is not I am who you want, but I am who I am. He is self-defining. He is saying that I am supreme and nothing compares to me. I am eternally independent of everything in creation. I depend on nothing and everything, including you, Moses, depends 
on me. And he is saying for every circumstance and for every child in your life, Moses, I am who I am and I am enough. I am sufficient for all of your weakness. That's why God showed up as a fire in the bush. That fire needed no fuel and God needs no external fuel because He is self-sustaining. And the challenge for us is will you let this powerful God define your life? One person said that God made man in His image and then man returned the favor. Would it not make sense that if God is sufficient that there will be times that He will contradict our lives? He is not a tame pet God. Does it not make sense if He's really that sufficient then God is who He is, not necessarily who we want Him to be. You see, if you have a clay God, you can mold that clay God into anything that you want Him to be. But if you have a fiery God, He will melt you and He will mold you into what He wants you to be. God's third point to Moses and to us is, I am sufficient. So what happens when Moses encounters the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? As crazy as it sounds, all of his promises came to pass. Moses delivered the people. He took them back to Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. And they fulfilled verse 12. They worshipped there. And then Joshua led the people into the promised land. And they conquered all of the Jebusites, Hittites, all those ites that are mentioned in that passage. They uh, exercised rule under David and Solomon. All of it came to pass. But did it last? It did not last. You see, the people couldn't keep the law of Moses. And they couldn't exercise the rule of David and Solomon. So instead of the great I Am sending Moses, the great I Am, has to come Himself. Maybe you remember John chapter 8 when Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders. And as they're arguing, the leaders say, How dare you contradict us, Jesus? We are the children of Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says not, I was, but I am. And later he says, and Abraham was thrilled to know me. Jesus is not claiming to be some really old deity like Highlander. He is claiming to be the Lord of the burning bush. The Lord of the universe. You see, they understood what Jesus was claiming because they wanted to kill him. Anybody who says that Jesus never claimed to be more than a great teacher has not read John chapter 8. Jesus, in this moment of arguing with the religious leaders, is claiming to be Yahweh. Now, back in Exodus 3, who is the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is not Michael or Gabriel or some lesser angel, but the angel of the Lord is God. All throughout the Old Testament, 
The only way that people can approach a holy God is through a sacrifice burned in the fire. Make no mistake about it. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. The second person of the Trinity. God the Son is speaking to Moses in this moment. God was in the bush and it did not burn up. And friends, if you are a believer, God is in you and we will not perish or burn up because of the presence of a mediator. It's why Isaiah in chapter 43 says, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, Christians are told that we, we are all parts of the temple. And that when we trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. If He is holy, how are we not consumed? Why? A mediator. Jesus. We are that bush that is not consumed because of the presence of a mediator. Now, last question. What does this mean for us? It means that when inadequate people like me and you meet an adequate God in glory and in grace, we cannot and do not remain unchanged. How will it change us? One, one way is this. It will challenge our pride. We have to admit that we are inadequate. Moses was not eloquent. He was not successful. God has all of that without Moses. And he now knows in this middle part of his life that he is broken and insufficient. He's a nobody. One preacher said that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody. He spent the next 40 years realizing he was a nobody. And in the last 40 years of his life, seeing what God can do with a nobody. But you see, the first step to being used by God is to admit that we are inadequate. Jesus refers to himself as I am all throughout the Gospel of John. Who does he say needs the great I am? He says, to those in darkness, I am the light. To those who thirst, I am the living water. To those who feel lost, I am the way. To those confused, I am the truth. To those under the curse of death, I am the life. To those who feel insufficient, I am the good shepherd. To those who need a fresh start, I am the door. To those crushed by guilt, I am the resurrection and the life. The God of grace is for anyone, but you have to admit that you're the inadequate, you're the thirsty, you're the one in the dark, you're the guilty, you're the condemned, you're the insufficient one, you're under the curse of death. In order to receive the grace of God, you have to admit that you need it. You will pour contempt on all your pride. But on the other hand, it also, the grace of God, meets our insecurities because He is adequate. God tells every Christian in this room that you have a gift and no one is inadequate because I am enough. Moses had a speech impediment. He had murder on his resume and a whole lot of personal doubt. And God used him. He had lived two-thirds of his life before God met him in the burning bush. The male average life expectancy right now, 
76.4. Two-thirds of the way through, it's 50.4. You've got a lot of work left to do. Female, 81.2. So two-thirds of your life would be 53.6. It's never too late to be used by God. And when Moses met God, he is sent out by God. Christians, every time we meet God, we are sent out by God. Jesus did that in Matthew 28. He gave us a commission. Go therefore into all the world. And he reminded us of his covenant. And lo, I am with you always. The God of grace can use anyone. Have you encountered him? How would God define himself? He tells us he's holy, he's faithful, he's sufficient. You may have heard of this guy, Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher in the 17th century who had an encounter with God and he wrote about it in his journal. And he actually sewed it into the pocket of his jacket and they found it after he died. It's rather lengthy, but I'll just read a few lines. This is how it starts. It says, In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past ten in the evening until about half past twelve, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and savants, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. He starts his description with fire. Have you encountered the fire of the Lord? Moses did. Pascal did. Have you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do ask that we would encounter You all the time. And that we would do this for the first time today or maybe the 500th time. Father, we need You and we need to know You. So we ask that You would continue to reveal Yourself to us. Father, You are good. You are love. You are light. You are hope, peace, truth, and joy. Lord, help us to come to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.